0: Hey, this is Dave Correal, president of Delcor. Welcome to this episode of Reboot IT. It's Reboot IT, the association and nonprofit technology podcast. Brought to you by Delcor. And now your host, Delcor president, and a professor who doesn't wear a corduroy jacket, Dave Coriel. Today I'm going to talk about how technology affects the way we work. This was brought up because a few weeks ago I was fortunate enough to be part of a series of speakers at the Association Leadership Forum for ASAE out in Las Vegas. So it was a great experience. It was about 200 different CEOs uh, listening and talking and sharing uh, about different topics and we had a series of speakers and my particular topic was how technology affects the way we work. So given that Um, You know, I thought about well, what are are the two things I want to try to cover in my uh, roughly forty-five minutes of of being part of this group of speakers, and I broke it down into two categories. One is going to be literally how technology changes the way we work, and then two, how technology likely will change the way we work. It was really interesting to listen to some of the questions and concerns I got from the CEOs about the way technology is changing the way we work, and just as importantly, changing the way industry works. So let's dive right into it. The topic that I really wanted to cover um, as its own kind of standalone topic related to the way technology changes the way we work is just the whole remote workforce Right. It offers us a whole new level of flexibility that we didn't have a long time ago. And, and I think the technology is has outpaced our acceptance of what we can do using technology with, um, with, with kind of respect to the whole distributed workforce or remote workforce, uh, question. So Delcor has two offices, one here in, in Washington DC and then another one, uh, in, in Chicago. And, There's plenty of traffic to go around in both of those locations, as well as pretty much all the cities we visit, right? The visit associations and nonprofits out there. Given the traffic and even with public transportation, it's not real easy to get to where you're going. So one of the things that we did a long time ago is we started working with you know, our staff with Delcorians to work remotely when possible. Uh, this started a long time ago before the technology really even supported it. We were doing this so that uh, our bookkeeper, our finance person worked from home because she lived about an hour and a half in terms of commute to the office. So she'd work from home more days than working in the office. And it worked because it was a really transactional level type product. You know, her, her, her transactional type work could be done anywhere. So, uh, you know, we didn't have quite the amount of technology we have now, obviously, but we had we had the ability for her to do what she needed to do remotely. That was probably, I'm not exaggerating, 20 years ago, you know, and then we also have writers on staff who m- were fantastic, but were moving out of the area. And we've had other staff who are awesome, but were moving out of the area. So we figured out ways through technology to keep them uh, as part of the team but really not require them to be in the office all the time. What we've seen in the association nonprofit community is the, the adoption of a similar uh, mindset over the last probably 7 to 10 years, uh, uh, you know, roughly. But really, you know, whether or not that it's been embraced as much as it should be is kind of my question to the group when I was out in Las Vegas at the Association Leadership Forum. And so I wanted to back up a little bit and talk about some larger trends uh, and just give you some food for thought on whether or not your organization should be more flexible in the way that your staff, your team members work, given the capabilities of technology today. I wanted to start by talking about some uh, information I found in preparation for uh, my talk outside of the association community. So I looked at um, a couple of different sources. One. And because it was an international audience, I, you know, I went to some international sources and there's a group called Capability Jane in the UK that did some research about flexible uh, working schedules. And here's just some, some data for you to think about. 92% of millennials identify as flexibility as a top priority when job hunting. 80% of women and 52% of men also identify flexibility as a top priority when when looking for a new uh, position. And 70% of UK employees feel that flexibility at work makes the job more attractive to them. And 30% would prefer flexible working as opposed to a pay raise. So there's definitely some strong data there uh, suggesting, especially for those of us that want to attract and retain talent from millennial or further generations, because that's the expectation uh, that they're going to think about. Think about the number of, of students who are in colleges now that are taking their coursework online. I've been teaching for Georgetown for over 10 years and what I used to teach in the classroom, I teach online now. I can see the trend. I felt the trend. And that's the expectation from that cohort, right, that, that you're going to be able to do what you need to do online. And in some instances, you're going to be able to do um, what you need to do when you need to do it, as opposed to doing everything in the same time as everyone else who's in your group. So the point of bringing up these statistics is that we're really trying to attract and retain talent, then we need to make sure that we're addressing one of their top priorities when job hunting, right? It just makes sense. So uh, flexibility is one of those those pieces of uh, criteria they're using for um, selecting uh, where they're going to go next, what their career path looks like and who they're going to who they're going to be engaged with and work for. So another thing I looked at was the World Happiness Report, which pointed out that Finland is the happiest country in the world. So when I think of Finland, I don't necessarily go straight to the happiest country in the world, Uh, but there's a bunch of different criteria, right? It's not all about how long the winter days aren't or what the temperature is, um, you know, a large portion of the year. So part of what the reason that that Finland scores so high in the happiness index that this group studies is um, because of access to education, access to art, um, crime, etc. But one of the things that pointed out in this this report that I was reading was that in 1996, Finland passed the Working Hours Act, which gave workers the right to adjust their typical workday hours up to three hours in either direction. And that was back in 1996. And what it's kind of led to is this culture where Finland is um, now one of the places with the most flexible work schedules on the planet. 92% of the companies allow workers to adapt their hours as well as where they work, as opposed to in the US and UK, it's just about three quarters or in some other countries um, like Japan, it's as low as 18%. So according to this study. So those two things combined together, if we think about millennial or even beyond millennial, you know, Gen X, et cetera, it might not be as much of a generational thing. That's just what the data was was pointing out, but it didn't give me data on the other generations. I think folks who are given the ability to work in a flexible format in terms of location and in terms of time, especially if you live in a metropolitan area, are more likely to be engaged and productive. And they're more likely to be happy. When those two things are put together, combined with the fact that a study that Upwork did of just over a thousand hiring managers, it was really clear in that study that, that remote work and flexibility is a big advantage for attracting the talent that your organization wants and needs. So what needs to be in place for flexibility to really work? Uh, I think the number one thing is trust trust has to be in place between all the team members and between the executive staff and the team that's that's executing the vision, executing the mission and doing the work, that it's not about uh, whether or not I can see you do the work or whether or not I can see that you're being productive. It's about whether or not I trust that you're, you're doing the work and trust that you are being productive. Um, naturally, all positions have some types of indicators for whether or not what needs to get done is getting done. And if you are um, looking at those indicators, it doesn't matter whether someone's doing something behind a closed door in the same building as you, uh, you know, in an office next to you, or uh, at, their, at their working out of their remote location, whether it's their house or WeWork or whatever. So trust needs to be in place. Another thing that needs to be in place is a clear policy and a decision-making tree so that the organization knows what are the rules for those that can work remotely and what's the criteria by which it's determined whether or not somebody can work remotely or have flexible work hours. Uh, One of the things that came out in the study that Upwork did was that uh, of the companies studied, almost uh, 65% of them had remote workers, but around 55, 57% of those companies didn't have a remote work policy. So even though the, the more of the companies had remote workers than not, more of the companies that had remote workers didn't have any policies in place for the remote workers. So this creates confusion. It creates distrust. It creates um, some bit of a bit of uh, maybe animosity towards different um, within different departments or across departments when it's not clear if and why somebody can work remotely, but someone's doing it. But you're you can't in your department because it's not an organizational wide policy. So you know, the first thing is trust. The second thing really is clear, communicated, understandable policies. And that goes both for the decision-making criteria, what you can do and can't do in, in terms of remote work. And also, what is your responsibility as a remote worker in order to um, take advantage of that? Another thing that needs to be place is really the communication tools. And this is where I think technology is caught up to the needs of of. This particular capability, right? It was one thing to be able to VPN or use a remote control desktop type application. But now with things like Microsoft Teams, with, um, you know, Zoom, uh, you're able to connect in real time much more easily and effectively, just like you're walking down the hall and poking your head in somebody's office. But the communication tools allow you to uh, not only communicate through IM or through video or audio conferencing on the fly, they allow you to share documents, co-author documents. So um, the, the technology is caught up to the capability. Speaking of technology and flexibility, one of the things that we're finding is we're helping organizations implement Office 365 and its tool set like Teams and SharePoint Online is that organizations really need to take this in a very systematic way. It's a big shift for the way we work, and it's a big shift in our culture to use these tools the way they were meant to be used. We're finding organizations, some organizations will have things like WhatsApp, Slack, and Teams all running and being used for instant messaging or some form of communication or collaboration, but there hasn't been kind of a Really structured approach. So it's kind of an unstructured evolution of what the tool sets are, as well as what the tool sets are being used for. So, as I'm talking about flexibility and remote work, and knowing what you can do with things like Teams channel calls or um, Zoom calls, knowing what you can do with Slack, knowing what you can do with Um, SharePoint Online, all these different technology platforms that you now have access to through your Office 365 license, Uh, granted, depending on which one you have. But what you don't want to do is one of two things. You don't want to adopt it all at once and let it affect the way you work in a flexible, in terms of flexibility, remote locations, um, or collaborate. And you also don't want to just use 10% of the tool, so to speak. You don't want to do something like we're going to migrate from our current file share to a SharePoint online file share, but we're not going to change anything about the way we work in the long run. That's not getting the value out of what you have in front of you. And it's really not taking advantage of the technology in the way that it's meant to be taken advantage of in order to to, in order for you to be more productive and meet your business objectives. So the way Office 365 or G Suite is affecting the way we work and collaborate is something we can talk about on a future podcast. And I promise I'll bring in someone else to talk with me so it's not just me talking to you the whole time. You perhaps also need some training, right? When I was talking to the other uh, folks here at Delcor about what are our lessons learned from having a remote workspace or what are our lessons learned from working with clients who are adopting more and more remote work is that we've discovered that, you know, you can't just set somebody free. You have to train them not only on the technology, but also on what are the expectations based on the policy and how are you an effective remote worker? And it sounds perhaps very 101, but things that you didn't do when you saw each other casually in the hall, you might need to do electronically. Um, if you're going to remote, be a remote worker, that might mean kind of a daily summary or a daily check-in. It might mean calling somebody versus sending an email when you normally would have sent an email or an IM because you want to talk to them and, or if you're going to video conference, which is the best, you want to see each other. And really make sure that you're understanding each other's uh, communication, nonverbal cues, etc. So having that training of what it means to be in a remote location will really help a lot versus just kind of setting up the technology and letting them free. The last thing that needs to be in place that I'll mention, I think, is that it has to be a common understanding throughout the organization of what the what the remote workforce policy is. It really does set up some um, bad blood, so to speak, when it's not a evenly applied standard for folks who are doing the same type of work, but only some of the folks can work uh, remotely and others can't. So what's the quick pro tip list here for remote workforce? Technology has to be in place, training and support has to be in place, schedule one-on-one meetings, require video at least occasionally on on the calls, and then Make it clear what the expectation is as far as, and I think this is important, even though it sounds funny. Is make that make sure the um, expectation is clear of what the presentation is. Is it okay to get on a peer-to-peer work chat, video chat, video call in a T-shirt and a baseball cap, or is the expectation that in this organization everyone dresses to a certain professional level, whether they're home or whether they're coming to the office? Again. I don't care which one you pick, you just have to make sure you pick one and that it's clear to the whole organization. Then I want to dive into kind of part two of, of the conversation that I was having out, out at the uh, Association Leadership Forum. And it really was how technology is changing industry or the way we work in a different way. It's one thing to say technology changes our, our workday because we can work where and when we want. It's another thing to say that our, in, our entire industry is changing because of technology So one of the things I did is I looked at some studies that were done by Fortune magazine, the UK Daily Mail, and also I looked at some Gartner uh, data and it suggested that there are certain industries that are most likely to be kind of, for lack of a better term, lost to robotics and artificial intelligence, AI, coming down the pike. And they really were looking at the year 2030, So basically 10 years out, right, as far as when these industries are going to be severely disrupted in their estimation um, based on technology. And the the industries were, according to these articles um, and studies, were uh, pharmacists, lawyers and paralegals, drivers, astronauts, cashiers and clerks, soldiers, and here's one for you, babysitters. And then sports writers or other or other type of reporters. So I took a look at that because I thought that was really interesting. And I started looking for uh, a lot. There's a company called Boston Robotics, and they have a lot of really scary videos out there for you to watch on YouTube about how capable robots are. And one of the ones that I found was an AI-enabled robot that is able to hang drywall slowly, but able to hang drywall, identify the uh, studs, identify where the drywall pile is, get a piece of drywall, put it up, screw it in, go get another piece of drywall, put it up, screw it in, et cetera. That's really different than what we're used to for robotics in a factory where there's a robotic arm that knows how to pick up a bolt and attach it to something. And that's all it does all day long is this mechanical doing the same thing over and over again versus making decisions like this this, um, drywall hanging robot did because it had to understand what the environment looked like and it wasn't just doing the same thing it was applying rules to what it needed to do with the drywall that it had to find and recognize what drywall was to begin with so that drew some ooze when i showed that and explained that this just isn't manufacturing robotics this is ai enabled robotics So one of the things that people kind of laughed at was the whole concept of babysitters being uh, artificially intelligent, um, enabled robots. And there are some instances where that's happening in um, areas in like, for instance, in in Japan, where you have shopping experiences where there are robots who will watch the child and there's a human involved too, but the heavy lifting is done by the robots uh, in in the babysitting area. I also stumbled upon, and I didn't talk about this in Las Vegas, that there's a hotel, the Henna Hotel in Japan, that has over 100 robots and about seven staff for a 90-some-odd uh, room hotel that your check-in, your baggage, um, in your room, there's a, a concierge, so to speak. It's all uh, robotic stuff. It looked a little gimmicky. I don't think it was quite there from the AI perspective, but the bottom line was things that were traditionally done by humans were being done by robots. The study also was good, and it outlined some of the quote-unquote safe jobs that are out there. You know, that they don't expect robots, artificial intelligence and robots combined to take over. And those were along the lines of mental and mental health and addiction therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, and nutritionists, physicians, surgeons, and the clergy. Those were the kind of the short list on things that they consider quote-unquote safe professions. But really, I think they're all, there's a safe version of these professions. It's just different. For example, take the drywall robot. There's still going to be a need for that industry, for that um, sector, to have the uh, skilled people to maintain the robots and skilled people to run, program, and monitor, so to speak, the robots to make sure that the job's getting done. The reality is, yes, there's a lot of concern and there's it's, it's, it's an ethical question as much as it is or more so than a technology question as to what will we do when we have entire industries like drivers or cashiers and clerks or drywallers being replaced by machines and artificial intelligence robots that can do the job 24/7 and don't require benefits, don't require, you know, the same um, healthcare, they don't require rest time the way that we do as humans. So what's going to happen to those humans who are out out so or, you know out of out of a job based on the robots and the AI taking those positions. So that isn't something I intend to talk about here and now, but it's certainly something that if I was an association exec in my industry was potentially going to be disrupted by this wave of technology, I would want to make sure I understand how I have to position my organization, its members, its suppliers for the future as part of the value I deliver to that particular industry or profession. So one thing I'd recommend you do is... In your annual planning, include some type of external technology SWOT analysis for your industry as opposed to just your organization. And many of you are doing this. I know of at least three organizations where the CIO is focused on external technology as opposed to internal technology. There's a VP of technology that is focused on the operations and management of the organization's technology, but the association CEO is out in the industry, in the profession, working with the members, making sure that the um, opportunities and threats that exist to the profession through technology are being accounted for. And they're helping bring the industry along as opposed to trying to resist what is happening because of technology. So what does this mean for the future? You know, it means a couple things. And I'm giving you two really specific ways to think about this. One is the ultra-practical, how does it affect us today, right? What's going on with our organization in terms of taking advantage of something like flexibility through technology? What's holding us back? Is it the work we do, the way we work, our lack of understanding of the tools? Is it our culture? Is it we're still stuck in that old-school mentality of FaceTime equals productivity as opposed to getting things done equals productivity? So maybe you should have a conversation that represents multiple uh, generations within the organization, as well as different perspectives based on the type of work you do in the organization and really talk through what's the organization's uh, future in terms of remote work, remote work and flexibility with the workspace. It's only going to allow you to attract better talent, retain the talent that you, you attract and have a more happy and productive work team. So this is a huge topic, right? There's a lot to the way technology is changing the way we work. But I wanted to keep this under 30 minutes, so I just want to really focus on two things. One, flexibility and remote, and then two, technology changing entire industries based on things like nanotechnology, robotics, um, artificial intelligence, etc. Um, make sure you're paying attention to these things both in both levels, the operation and management level as well as the strategic level for your organization's mission, vision, and business objectives. So that's what I have for you. I'm happy to talk about this stuff. Come by, give you a call. We can have a video conference. It won't even matter where we are. So I hope you're going to take something away from this, take some action, and, and have a conversation internally about your culture and your workplace flexibility, as well as really make sure that somebody owns that external scan of what's going on with the technology out in the world that might affect your industry. All right, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Reboot IT. If you like what you've heard, please help us out by subscribing and giving the podcast a five-star rating on whatever directory you use. Visit us at delcor.com or through our social media sites. We'll see you next time.